This is Confluence, where great ideas flow together. This is Confluence, where great ideas flow together, the podcast of the Graduate School of the University of Montana. I'm Ashby Kinch, Dean of the Graduate School. On Confluence, we travel down the tributaries of wisdom and beauty that enrich the soil of knowledge on our beautiful mountain campus. One of the things that's exceptional about Ada is that she's willing to roll up her sleeves and get her hands dirty around the topics that she finds the most interesting. Ranch work is hard work. It it requires patience, it requires time, and it requires you to get up every day at sunrise and get out there on the farm and do the work. You just heard the voice of Dr. Elizabeth Metcalf talking about Ada Smith, a student in UM's PhD program in forest and conservation sciences. On Confluence, we like to highlight graduate student accomplishments. And in this episode, we celebrate Ada as a winner of the PEO Award, a national organization that honors a female graduate student making a distinctive contribution to education. Ada is finishing her PhD in forest and conservation sciences, for which she received a prestigious NSF National Research Trainee Fellowship in addition to a Bertha Morton Scholarship Award in 2019. She's been lead author on three research publications and co-author on others in her research areas of rangeland, social ecological systems, climate adaptation, and adaptive rangeland management and decision-making. In this episode, we discuss her path into this important area of research, which combines her undergraduate training in anthropology with conservation science and is built from graduate work she has done in community-engaged research practices in Indigenous communities in Canada. We're proud to share her story with you on Confluence. Enjoy the float. Welcome to Confluence, Ada. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, um, as with Shell, we're celebrating uh, that you won the PEO Award. That's a pretty incredible award. Yeah, thank you so much. It's an honor to receive the award. You took a couple cracks at it, right? (laughs) I did. Yeah. This was my last uh, year putting my name in the in the hat for it. I'm glad that I I did. Um, Yeah, for me, I think it was it's just really validating that others see value in my research direction. I mean, I think that there's like a growing kind of awareness that rangelands in the U.S. are really important systems to understand in terms of in light of climate change. You know, 40 percent of like the U.S. is rangeland and ranchers are incredible stewards uh, on both public and private lands of uh, our rangelands. And so, yeah, it was just kind of validating in, in that respect. And then it also is just, you know, another opportunity to be part of a network of women supporting women in education. I feel like I've been fortunate to have sisters around the world in different contexts yeah. supporting me. Um, I grew up with sisters. I went to Wellesley College, which is an all-women's school. And then I taught at an all-girls school after Wellesley. And I just feel like I've had so much support from the women in my life. And so to be part of another network of women who value science and education and are kind of here to support one another is a great opportunity. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that story to go to Wellesley. How did that happen? How did you end up uh, choosing it? Not just the, the, the female education component of it, but why Wellesley? Yeah, great question. Well, I grew up in Wisconsin, and so 
I really wanted to explore different parts of the U.S., and I had my eyes set on the East Coast because there's so many fantastic colleges. Um, but my mom said I could only <laughs> visit a few schools, and she happened to be at an art conference in New York. So I was like, okay, well, I'll meet you out in New York, and we'll visit a few schools. Wellesley was not on my list. You know, I was looking at Middlebury and Bowdoin and Brown and some other schools. Kind of and- your standard high-achieving liberal <laughs> arts colleges, right? I think I worked harder in my life in high school than I've ever worked. I was very adamant about creating an opportunity for myself to kind of expand my horizons. So, yeah, but my mom had gone to Wellesley. So uh, we, she snuck, that she in snuck there. it in. I she, know you've gone to three or four, but we'll add Wellesley as a favorite. Exactly. She's yeah. like, I'd really love to go and see my alma mater. And so we stopped at Wellesley. And after, I think I had five schools that I visited and Wellesley was just incredible. The campus is beautiful. And I felt super welcomed by the cross country coach there. Cross country and uh, running isn't, you know, my life, but it was an important aspect of my my life Something um, you that I wanted to doing. continue. Yeah. 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 And when I'm kind of physically well, I feel like I'm also mentally, emotionally well. It just, I wanted to integrate that if I could. So really welcoming coach and coming from rural Wisconsin, I felt like it was a good opportunity to be outside of a big city, but not in a city like Brown or uh, Yale and New Haven or something. So yeah, I kind of narrowed down my options to Wellesley and Middlebury and then wow. applied early to Wellesley and got in and that's how it and that's that. <laughs> that's wow. that. And you studied um, anthropology and environmental studies there, which I, I found really interesting. It makes sense that you ended up in a PhD program. Eventually, that kind of welds resource management with social sciences. The interim step was University of British Columbia, where you did a master's. That was, I'm assuming, more kind of resource focused. Yeah, it it was. My degree is technically in resources, environment, um, and sustainability. But my focus there in my master's thesis was in the food system space. And so, yeah, so at, at Wellesley, I was in environmental studies and anthropology, double major, but I did a, a thesis that focused on kind of food justice and environmental justice in Puerto Rico. And so my lens of kind of looking at the intersection between humans, human culture, human values, and in environmental health was through food. Right. And I stuck with that lens in, in my master's where I was really focused on indigenous food systems and had a wonderful opportunity to work with an indigenous advisor, Charles Menzies, who's been working with his community for most of his career. And my my thesis there focused on food sovereignty and really what it means for Kakatla Nation to, to achieve this thing called food sovereignty and what that entails. And were you able to kind of see some progress in that area while you were there on increasing food sovereignty? Or is that is the longer lens your advisors were going back in time? So I was able to, I mean, I don't know if I would say in the short time that you have to do a master's, I was necessarily able to see like these great strides or great outcomes from my work or our our work, you know, my work with my advisor on this idea of food sovereignty, but really that (laughs) research enabled me, me to understand what food sovereignty actually is and what it looks like for one community Uh, in particular. Food sovereignty is something that looks different in every single community. And for Kikatla, you know, part part of being able to achieve food sovereignty is really integrating indigenous knowledge into uh, education and food food systems education. And so that was the focus of my my thesis. And really that, that research took a different approach than a lot of other fields. We followed like a decolonizing um, research methodology where 
I essentially was based in Kitkatla and worked in community in the role, in kind of a teaching role. And after a significant amount of time spent with Kitkatla, that's where sort of my my thesis and research questions were better kind of defined. And so it's kind of a little bit backwards, you know, than your typical research approach where you set out, you start out with a question that you have to answer and you go and kind of find the answer in community. So instead you're finding the question from the community and this is the community engaged research model, exactly. uh, which here we also couple with the indigenous research model, right? Which is making sure from the very beginning, the research project is defined from an indigenous culture perspective and not from the outside in, but from the inside out. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I was, I'm really grateful for that opportunity. I think that it set me up for my research here in Montana, working with the ranching community in a really valuable way of putting kind of relationships first and trying to understand my research context by really embedding myself within it. And so, yeah, I'm sure we'll get to talking about my my work now, but I... Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is the segue, right? Because I'm fascinated by the, you know, social science comes in a lot of, it, it covers a wide range, right? But if you've come from the anthropological tradition, that's decades of internal debate built into that field about its ethical problems, right? Uh, you know, the, the ethical problem of the outsider coming in and studying. So they've kind of built up a certain tradition for thinking about that. Environmental studies, you know, very various field as well. Like, I'm just thinking about all your backgrounds are very interesting because they've all, they've evolved dramatically just in the last, say, decade or two decades over their ethics, over how they define a research question. So how did you come to kind of make that choice to do this kind of PhD? Yeah, I mean, I think that from my from my master's work, I felt really strongly about having like a community centered, relationship centered research approach. Um, but at the same time, I felt like in that two years, I wasn't able to develop all of the kind of social science methodological skill sets that I wanted to, and so I really wanted to kind of broaden uh, my skill set into quantitative uh, methods. And also kind of broaden my skill set to include more formal interviews. And I, I was incredibly inspired by the relationship that my advisor at UBC had with the community, his own community that he worked with. And so my master's work really allowed me to reflect on my positionality in my work and made me question, okay, what community do I want to work with, what community or communities do I want to develop longstanding relationships with? And it takes it takes a time, a long time to yeah. establish trust with communities. And so so thinking about that, I I felt like Montana is a home for me. And I really wanted to go back home and kind of work with a community that I felt like I would be more of an insider researcher with and a community that I feel just really connected to and deeply rooted in. It was exciting to think about having, you know, a really meaningful relationship with a community like my advisor from my master's program had with his own community. And so that's really where, you know, my desire to come back to Montana, you know, kind of was born out of, or yeah, yeah, exactly. We'll say more about that, about your Montana identity, a home, a Montana home. This is from your background. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up spending summers in, in Montana. Um, my dad, actually taught a ceramics course here at the University of Montana and uh, would fire a kiln out at Lubrecht every summer. The 
he, he actually built the wood-fired kiln in the 80s. Yeah, my parents met here. <laughs> and so I have grandparents still here. My grandma lives out in Nine Mile. And yeah, I, I had actually come back to Montana for a celebration of life for my grandpa. Um, he was a longtime rancher in the Nine Mile Valley. And that was um, kind of at the end of my master's degree. And that drive from Vancouver back to Montana just felt like I was coming home. Yeah, so I just had this kind of deep sense of like, yeah, I really would love to be in Montana again. And the ranching community, I have kind of family roots in. And I had actually applied to work on a ranch the summer after I uh, defended my thesis. So I was like already seeing myself like back in this context. And so when the opportunity came up to work with Libby, on a project, working with the ranching community. It was just perfect. It was, just just perfect. It like was literally just stars up aligned. for you. Yeah. 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 I felt super lucky. I remember running into my like housemates room and just being like with the with the um, posting on um, like the web's Libby's, I think it was the human dimensions page. I like went into my roommate's room and I was like, I think this is me. Like <laughs> this is me in a description right yeah. here. Like I think I'm gonna go back to Montana. Yeah. So it's a it, your Montana story is a kind of full circle story. You know, you you, you obviously grew up in Wisconsin. You went east, went way back west, and then here you are back in Montana doing your work. So research publications already uh, uh, under your belt, and you're and you're moving forward on your research. What ties it all together? What's your sort of deep concepts that you're working with on rangeland in particular? One of the most like meaningful experiences coming back to Montana and kind of reintegrating myself into this context and uh, this ranching context was working on a ranch, working for the Mannixes out in the Blackfoot Valley the first summer, you know, summer after my first year here. And um, so for listeners who don't know Mannix beef, I mean, it's a fairly well-known, very, you know, important brand, I guess, is of organic beef. Grass-finished beef. Yeah. Yeah, And they have, um, you know, kind of a a deep sense of um, stewardship and work with conservation organizations and stuff. Um, And so I'm incredibly grateful for that opportunity to um, to just, you know, get my kind of boots on the ground here in uh, Montana and have an experience um, working on a ranch to understand the decision-making context um, that my you know research seeks to understand better, and and that experience um, I was so adamant about having because of uh, my master's work and that idea of doing research um, where you really are involved in in the community that your research intends to serve. Excellent. So my focus in my um, dissertation is really trying to understand how ranchers are planning for and responding to drought and climate change. Um, and I'm using an adaptive decision-making framework to really understand those factors that are either enabling or constraining uh, ranchers' decision-making or ability to make decisions uh, and plan for and respond to climate change. So that's kind of the essence of my dissertation work. But it's also part of a larger research effort. The Montana Drought and Climate Project is a collaborative interdisciplinary project working with the Montana Climate Office to develop a suite of climate information resources for both both farmers and ranchers that are really tailored to meet their needs in decision making. But I'm guessing there are some pain points there, right? There are some ideological pain points. So, so far, how has your sort of background experience as a, you know, insider to the culture allowed you to kind of communicate past what would be obvious political 
um, problems in just talking about climate change. I'm guessing there are some farmers and ranchers in Montana who, for example, don't accept climate change as a reality. Yeah, that's true. But they are kind of, you know, they are the people working on the land who feel feel acutely the effects of climate change. We're in a drought right now. And so I think, you know, in interviews and in working with ranchers at, uh, I guess, on the ground and or in other kind of contexts, for me, it's important to communicate around like shared you know, values and understandings. Everyone can recognize we're in a drought. Everyone can recognize we have water shortages. And a farmer, more than anybody, is feeling that most acutely. And so that's the shared understanding. Whether or not what's driving it up above is this larger intellectual construct. Exactly. They can see on the land the impacts. Yeah, whether someone believes that climate change is caused by natural cycles or is human-caused, the reality is, is that ranchers are having to adapt and having to think about ways in which they're going to, you know, keep their livelihood in light of in light of these events. And so that's really where the focus is. It's, you know, it's on the climate adaptation piece. It's not the climate mitigation piece. There's nothing in my work tra- uh, about, you know, blaming, you know, ranchers for their contributions, which a lot of the literature does around beef production and the beef industry. And it's really, it's actually, it's misleading because a lot of that literature focuses on a really narrow suite of indicators. Um, and also beef production is incredibly diverse in terms of the types of management, types of operations, and the you know, the aspects of the supply chain that are the most impactful in terms of climate change. So primary production versus your secondary, you know, processing, your kind of feedlot systems and the the processing processing and distribution. Still don't have an industrial scale slaughterhouse in the state of Montana, which was kind of amazing for me to learn. I grew up in Texas and then went to school in California where the food systems are huge, right? And it's interesting that, that we have a feedlot system, but we're still mostly shipping cows away to be slaughtered and processed. Exactly. It's a huge constraint. And, and not necessarily the right environmental constraint. I mean, in other words, it's kind of a negative from an environmental, you know, shipping cattle somewhere else. And it's a constraint in terms of um, ranchers being able to, diverse, to diversify their enterprises and do more direct market, you know, local selling. And so, yeah, my research really tries is, is trying to kind of ad- identify some of those constraints to being more adaptive to climate change. But also, you know, ranchers are dealing with land use change. They're dealing with demographic change. There are all kinds of pressures and changes that people are adapting to constraining factors, you know, involved involve policy. They involve also maybe informational constraints, which we're trying to address with the Montana Climate Office, providing better information. Yeah, but also some of these these structural Market factors access, are, so, yeah, are incredibly yeah. important. And yeah, the types of you know programs, cost share programs and other conservation programs uh, ranchers are able to participate in or not, how those are actually working for people, things like that. And so your work, because it's intrinsically social and, and is about relationship building, I'm sure that applies double with the people that you collaborate with. So this would be Libby and your fellow graduate students. Tell us a little bit about that program and its sort of team environment and its collaborative environment. Yeah, I have loved the collaborative you know, nature of the Montana Drought and Climate Project that I'm on, in particular working with um, Kelsey Genso and Kyle Basinski in the climate office. Uh, and then uh, Lori Young and Libby Metcalf, my advisor, and other grad students. It's been super fun to feel like I'm part of a team 
and to learn more about the climate science, you know, aspect of, of Montana's reality right now and, and what is possible in terms of the type of information, data and like informational resources that we're able to provide to the agricultural community. And so that's been really fun. I also just feel like, you know, my advisor Libby is incredibly collaborative in all of her work. And she's she's included me on other side projects that I've been able to be a part of her uh, kind of side project working from her dissertation on women in hunting. Uh, and then Alex has had uh, some data that I've been able to work with, um, with other grad students. Um, this is Alex Metcalf, Alex Metcalf yeah, also on, a professor yeah, in the forestry. Yeah, program. on sustainability and the and the beef production uh, system. So I just feel like I've been in an environment here at the University of Montana, and particularly in the Human Dimensions Lab, that is super collaborative and inclusive. It's set a standard or precedent for me going forward that I'd love to recreate. You know, if I um, have my own lab someday. Yeah, I mean that and you know, to bring it back to the top, um, the chance to be a mentor to other female academics, other, uh, you know, f- to, to pass that baton on as well. I'm sure as a PEO scholar, that's going to be on your mind. As you <laughs> I would, forward. I would love to stay in academia. That's the plan right now. And to continue research and teaching. I find that I get a lot. I, I, it's really rewarding to, to teach and to feel like you are, oh, I don't want to say making a difference because it sounds a little bit cheesy, but um, hey, sometimes I don't know. the cliche <laughs> is a cliche for a reason, right? Yeah, to, to feel like your, your work, um, you're doing sort of work that is potentially making a difference on more of, more of a day to day basis. Because in research, you know, the sort of research t- takes a long time. Yeah. And so you aren't able to necessarily feel the impact of your work for a while. And so I think teaching really um, adds, you know, the kind of day-to-day. You can see those brains lighting up. Yeah, exactly. I think you're going to be a wonderful professor someday. And uh, thank you very much for coming and sharing your story with Confluent. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. If you like what you've heard, You've got Kate Lloyd to thank. She's a student in our MFA program in media arts. Her deft ear and keen editing touch have created the sonic landscape through which you're floating. We'd like to thank UM's College of Arts and Media for providing studio space and talent to support this production. Confluence is brought to you by the Graduate School of the University of Montana. Innovation, imagination, intellect to serve the state, the region, and the world. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google by searching Confluence University of Montana or click a link at the Confluence website, www.umt.edu grad. On the Telling Our Story tab, you'll find podcasts, videos, and other media that help us share with the world the groundbreaking research and creativity happening at the University of Montana. Enjoy the float. Turn on walls now. Mm-hmm. And say it, and say it, From and Pride say it. and Prejudice. <laughs> <laughs>